Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. You are listening to Be The Change, a podcast of conversations with true visionaries who are creating new paradigms for a healthier planet and society. I am your host, Christine Demick, and my work is in finding real solutions to the biggest problems we face today, climate crisis, capitalism, social injustices, and our failing health. There are amazing humans out there that have answers, and it is my mission to have their voices heard. Together, we can raise consciousness and create a just and equal society. Together, we can be the change. The conversation you are about to listen to took place on March 9th, 2022, and is with the author and messenger, Neil Donald Walsh. This is unlike any interview I've done before. And in fact, I wouldn't call it an interview. I'm calling it Conversations with Neil. I discovered early on, as I started to interview Neil, that this was going to be a conversation. And, you know, (laughs) my questions just kind of went out the window. There's so much in this conversation that I'm going to have to listen to it over and over and over again. I first came to Neil's work in my 20s in my own quest for finding meaning to life and who God was or who God is. And he had an incredible influence on my life and changing my views of what spirit is. And so began, I would say, my spiritual journey on and off. And I hope you enjoy it. And he's promised to come back again. And we will have another discussion, I hope, if it's meant to be. And one thing that I was struck with is that it's a balance. And that this world, when it's out of balance, will find its balance. And Neil discusses how we are all toddlers, just toddlers in this very young experience on this planet, working things out. And in his latest book, of which we discuss the God solution, the power of pure love, that our knowledge of our own divinity, that we come from source, and that we all stem from one source, and that we are all one, is truly a way for us to evolve as humans. And I hope you enjoy it. And I, my friend, as, as I came out of it, realizing that we're in times of, you know, forces of good against bad, and what is good and what is bad, and how it's all muddled. And she sent me Khalil uh, Gibran's Joy and Sorrow from the Prophet. You know, no coincidence. And it says, some of you say, joy is greater than sorrow, and others say, nay, sorrow is the greater. But I say unto you, they are inseparable. And I guess as we go through all these lessons right now that we're learning of what we don't want and how we don't want our world to be, we must go through them in order for us to decide what we want our world to be. For one can't happen without the other. And I'll leave you with that. And I hope you enjoy. Thank you. I'm beyond delighted to have you here because, oh gosh, when I was in my 20s, 
I had a time, as I say, when we're losing our religion, right? Questioning everything. And your book, Conversations with God, had just come out and it changed my life. And it absolutely changed my uh, connection to source, my idea of God. And I'm just deeply indebted to you for that and for having that opportunity to channel that information and to put it out there. Thank you for that. You're very welcome, Christine. It's hard for me to hear those thanks that I get from so many people, honestly, just between us. I I hear that every day from six different people. You know, this book changed my life. This book changed my life. This book changed my life. And honestly, I think, gosh, you know, I could feel really proud about that if I had anything to do with it. But I simply took dictation. I simply sat in my pool of questions that all of us have about life and took dictation. That's all I did. And then I agreed to have have what I took dictation on. I agreed to have it published because I was told in the messages that I received, you will make of this one day a book, which never occurred to me. I thought I was having a very private experience. I called it journaling. I thought I was just journaling Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and having a very private experience. And then I was told, no, 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 uh, you will make of this a book and it will be accessed by many people. I thought, well, we'll see about that. And you know what, Christine, that was my way of proving, because I thought, gosh, I've somehow connected with a source of higher wisdom. I'm convinced it lives within all of us. But here's a, here's a way to prove it, because everything else that I was, I want to say, hearing was conceptual in nature. You know, theoretical, could be, could not be, who would know? just concepts. But here was a statement of fact that could be measured. It was a measurable outcome. You will make of this a book and it will be accessed by many people. I thought, Christine, there's not a chance in the world. So I'm going to send my handwritten notes, even if I type them up to a publisher who's going to say, hey, let's turn this into a book. It's not going to happen. But in fact, a small publisher on the East Coast did exactly that. They said, well, oh, you know, we find this interesting. We're going to put it in, in the form of a book. What would you like to call it? And I said, well, I guess conversations with God. And so they put it out. And it raced within weeks to the New York Times bestseller list from this totally, totally unheard of publisher, a small publisher in Hampton Roads, Virginia. And they put out maybe five, eight books a year, maybe. But the book hit the New York Times list. It was purchased immediately by Putnam because they, you know, all the big publishers swoop in when, you know, when a small publisher has a bestseller. Yeah. So they bought the book from Hampton Roads, and then it wound up being translated into thirty-seven languages and being read by over fifteen million people. Who would know? <laughs> so I'm, you know, I'm sitting there like. Thank you for the thanks, but I have nothing to do with this except to watch the whole phenomena and simply say every day of my life, are you kidding me? Yeah. 15 million people in 37 languages? So that's where I'm at. But thank you for saying those nice words to me. And I know that you are feeling benefited by what happened in my life. And I appreciate you saying those nice things. I just wanted to be real clear that I don't take credit for it. I have nothing to do with it except 
I have a background as a reporter, as it happened. I spent my life in journalism as a reporter. And so I knew how to take good notes. Yeah. And you certainly did. One of the things is that when I was reading it and I remember and I'd be like, okay, all right, I'm following along. But what about this? And then literally like a paragraph later, you would ask that. Yeah, isn't it funny? Yeah. Yeah, I've heard that too from many people. And and so what that's convinced me of, Christine, is that we're all asking the same kinds of questions. Yeah. And we all, when we get the answer to that, we all come up with the, the same next question. So it's a very common experience. And I think, frankly, I think that's why the book wound up being read by so many people, because the experience and the questions are so commonly held that everyone was saying the same thing to me. In fact, many people have said to me, you wrote my book. You know, I would have asked the same exact same questions, almost in that exact same order. Yeah. yeah. So I've heard that from so many people. So I'm really got pretty clear that something is afoot. So your your latest book, The God Solution. All right. I want to get to that. But but one thing I, I'd like to ask you is as we're discussing your your channeling and your conversations with God, with source. Myself, I've had a few experiences, most recently because my mother passed unexpectedly two years ago from COVID. And it was before we knew anything about it. Well, we, you know, the doctors at Sinai had said, no, it's not here. It's in China. It's not possible. We wouldn't even know how to test her for it. Right. And so, unfortunately, my beloved mother passed. During that time, I've always had a, you know, what I consider my connection with source. I meditate, you know, I have altars. I know religion per se, but definitely have, I'll have conversations with God myself, Neil. <laughs> well, the, the point of the book, of course, have you read the book? Of course, I've read every, all well, of your books. The, the point of the book is that we're all having conversations with God all the time. Chapter one, page one. So that that's in the very first chapter of the first book. So yes, of course we are. I'm not surprised to have you tell me that. And I had, you know, what people would call, you know, psychic experiences. My mother passed on February 12th. And three weeks before that, I woke up in the middle of the night. The number 12 flashed at me 12 times. I got up. I looked up the numerology. I thought it was an angel number. You know, every day we had hope. Two hours before my mother passed, I had hope that she was going to live. And, you know, it turns out that was the day that she passed. So I have numerous experiences like that. And even a moment of, as you did, sat there and I just dictated, I asked questions and wrote the answers, which is in a book in my living room. So I'm not going to share it, but it comes and it goes. And my question for you is, is this something that you're able to access at any time? And, and I know you say we all can, but do we just sit and do it? Well, let me answer your question in two parts. First part, I want to quibble just a little gentle, quiet, little small quibble with the word you used around a minute and a half ago when you said the word channeling. I don't channel. Uh And the reason that I want to quibble with the word is that the common use of the word channel is applied to a person who is said to have been occupied by another entity. Okay. that other entity is taking over that person's body temporarily, and then that person proceeds to channel. And I don't do that. So I don't I don't consider myself as someone who's channeling God any more than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John would say they channeled Jesus. They simply heard what Jesus had to say and took down what they thought he meant and what he said and 
and wrote about it. So I, I think I would call what I produced not channeling, but inspired writing. Okay. So if we can agree that it's not channeling, but inspired writing, the answer is yes. I can do that at will now. I've been doing this inspired writing for 25 years, and I can call upon that place of wisdom that resides within, to repeat myself, that resides within all of us. All of us can access that place of expanded wisdom and deeper understanding. All of us can access that, and many of us do. Uh, you know, where did Michelangelo come up with his ideas for the Sistine Chapel ceiling? If you've ever been in Rome and looked at the Sistine Chapel, you can stand there in the space of that genius and be touched actually by the vibration of it and brought to tears by something as extraordinary as that or, or something as extraordinary as Mozart's music or anyone who has found a way to access that inspiration, that place of inspiration that exists within all of us that produces what I call creation. It's part of the creation process. Whether we're creating a symphony or a piece of glorious art or perhaps a piece of literature or a short two stanza poem or whatever it might be uh, that we are creating, including babies, children, and every other expression of the human genius that it occurs to us to express. So yes, I can answer your questions. I have found a way to access that place within me at will. And I think that's how it's happened that I've published 39 books, because when I have that impulse within me to reach, or when I really feel something arising within me that, that I want to say, something that wants to be said, let me share with you a little anecdote. A few years ago, I woke up with not the number 12 in my mind, but actually the, a title, The Only Thing That Matters. And I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what that was referring to, but I knew that something wanted to emerge. So I raced, because I've, been, I've had that feeling before, I raced to my keyboard very early in the morning, 4.30 or 5 o'clock on this particular morning, and began to wrote down the only thing that matters. And my wife came to me around 7 or 8 o'clock, when she got up and said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm, I'm bringing something through here called the only thing that matters. She said, well, what is it? What's the only thing that matters? I said, I don't know. I'm letting the book tell me. I have no idea what it's going to say. But ultimately, the book did tell me. And I'm not sharing it with you because you have to buy the book. I want to get rich off my idea. Just kidding. <laughs> so, so, but in any event, it wound up being a book which was published immediately. When the publisher received it, they put it out immediately. And it turned out to be just another example of how all of us can access that place of divine wisdom within us if we choose to. But there are several steps in that process. If I could offer them to our listeners, step one, we have to admit or agree. We have to acknowledge that such a place does exist within us, that there is a space within us that contains, that's been given, that is a holder, a placeholder for divine wisdom. Number two, we have to acknowledge and agree that there is a space in the universe or an entity called the divine. I call it God that God exists, or at least that some higher power, however we want to define it, exists in the universe. Number three, we have to acknowledge that we are worthy 
to, which is not an easy thing, by the way, for some people to acknowledge, but that we don't need to do anything, be anything, have anything, or say anything in order to render ourselves worthy to receive and to have been given this divine wisdom that's embedded in all of us. Number four, we have to decide once we experience that divine wisdom, not to disavow it, not to reject it, not to abandon it, not to say, well, I'm making it all up, or it's just a coincidence, or it's a happenstance, or somehow write it off and not accept it for exactly what it is. And then number five, we have to act on it. When we receive that divine wisdom, whatever it is, whether it's a simple insight or a much larger expression, we have to decide to do something about it that is to move into action around it, rather than let it lie there. How many of us have, have awakened? I often ask my audiences this, and almost every hand in the audience goes up. I say, how many of you have ever, have ever awakened with an extremely vivid idea or dream in your mind, but then thought, wow, that was interesting, and then kind of went on with your day, and then wanted to make a note of it later and actually forgot about what the dream was. And you get angry with yourself. You get mad at yourself. Why didn't I write that down? As soon as I was clear about it, why did I let that escape from me? And every hand in my audience goes up, yeah, we've had that experience. So I have learned to write it down immediately. I keep a notebook, I keep a pad of paper, I keep one of these if this is all I have around me at all times, and I punch in what I've just received, what I've just heard, and I make sure I keep a note of it, and then I allow that to be the genesis or the start of what's turned out in my life, one of my 39 books including the most recent book called The God Solution. I do the same thing. By my bedside, I have a notepad and I will get up sometimes at four in the morning. Odd that it happens always around that time. And I think, Neil, one of the things that you said, we are going to get onto your book, The God Solution, which is what brought me to you in the intro. I, I mentioned about how we are faced right now, I think much more so, Correct me if I'm wrong, if you feel different. I know you're wrong. You're desperately wrong. We're the same age, but the amount of destruction that seems to be happening right now, I know that everyone, pretty much everyone listening is feeling that is quite overwhelming at the moment. And every day I search for the answer of how we're going to bring community together. And I think I Googled it or I wrote it in. <laughs> Your book came up, which I think is divine timing and absolutely no mistake. So I want to start talking about that in The God Solution because you talk about the power of pure love. And you don't touch on this lightly. So we're going to go in it and get in deep. Um, and I'm going to cut to the chase, first of all, is the first question is, and I think we have covered it, and I think we both agree, but for others, if there really is a God, why is this world such a mess right now? Because it's not God's job. The, the real question that people ask is, why doesn't God come down and make things better? Yeah. If there really is a God, how can any loving God allow what's happening to be yeah. happening? Mm-hmm. That's the question that sure. most people are. Yeah, you know, children are dying. About. I mean, there's yes. horrific things going on right it's, now. So why is God allowing that to happen? Mm-hmm. And what my understanding is that it is not God's function nor God's desire to simply orchestrate the day-to-day, moment-to-moment expressions and experiences of the human species. 
If God wanted to do that, he would have just created a species of minions, servants, if you will, who do nothing but listen to what God wants, watch what God is orchestrating, do what God tells them to do, and live a perfectly wonderful, beautiful, incredible life. But they wouldn't even know that it was wonderful, beautiful, or incredible because nothing else would exist. There'd be nothing in contrast to that. So they wouldn't even know good when they experienced it because they experienced nothing that is not good, and therefore good would have no meaning any more than the word big has a meaning if there's nothing that's small, any more than the word fast has any meaning if there's nothing that's slow. So every word in our language, every experience of our species is predicated on the existence of its opposite number. So what God's desire was not to create a species of minions that God would simply tell what to do and fix everything when things went wrong, but rather to create throughout the universe, not just on this planet, but elsewhere in the cosmos, sentient beings, entities, who would be given the power to create their own reality. And by the way, in any way they wished, that is, who would be given free will to create whatever they wished and chose to create. In this way, that which we call God could experience its creations as creators, or if you please, as to use the vernacular, as little gods, little entities that would likewise, as God has done, become creators of their own reality. So God does not tell us what to create. God says simply, go and create what you wish, including, if you wish, create your own destruction. That is your physical destruction. You can't create your actual destruction because you are not physical creatures. You are actually spiritual entities simply having a physical experience. But the spiritual entity that you are will live forever. It always was, is now, and always will be. And you may physicalize again, or to use a more commonly used word, you may reincarnate again, either on this planet or in some other place in the cosmos, wherever you choose to become physical once again, in order to once more enter into a relative experience, into an environment where things exist relative to other things, because the realm of the physical could also be called the realm of relativity, where there is in fact up and down, left and right, here and there, before and after, fast and slow, big and small, now and then, male and female, created he them, in that we might have the experience of who we really are in the presence of and in the knowledge of that which we are not. I was told very clearly in conversations with God that in the absence of that which you are not, that which you are is not. It is not experienceable. Yes. So the answer to the question, why doesn't God just come down and solve it? Why is the world such a mess? Is because the world is such a mess because we have made it such a mess. Mm -hmm. And we have made it such a mess because of the ethic the global ethic that we have embraced as our mutually held understanding about the most effective way to interact with each other. That is, humanity has decided that if there is a God, and by the way, you might find it interesting to know that actually eight out of 10 in every culture on the planet says yes when they're asked a survey question, do you believe in some sort of higher power? Uh -huh. Eight out of 10 people say yes. 
They may not agree on what the higher power is or how the higher power works or what that higher power wants or what that higher power does if it doesn't get what it wants. But eight out of 10 people agree there is a higher power. But what we've done on this planet, because so many of us agree that there's something more going on here than meets the eye, that there is a higher power. What we've done is we've sought to tailor our behaviors to model, if you please, our behaviors on the behaviors that we understand that the higher power exhibits. And most of the world's religions, oh, and by the way, that's also not a small number. There are over 4,000 religions on the face of the earth. Most people don't know that, but that's not just 4,000 ideas, 4,000 actually specific religions, faith systems that exist right now on the face of the earth. And almost all of those faith traditions or faith systems teach that there is a God and that God is loving, but that God is also judgmental, condemning, and punishing if we do not do what God wants. And so we have decided to embrace the exact same behavior as our model and that's the way we interact with each other. We hope we can be as loving with each other as we can be. But you know what? If we don't get from the other person or the other nation what it is that we want, we will judge, condemn, and punish. And we think it's okay to do that because it's exactly how we think that the higher power interacts with us. So we use that as our baseline. We use that as our authority. So when people say, by whose authority are you acting like this? Our answer is, well, this is how humanity has always behaved with each other. And those of us who believe in a higher power, not everyone does, but those of us who do, definitely believe in a higher power that condemns, punishes, and judges. So therefore, colon, the solution to what I call the God dilemma, the God solution is to redefine who and what God is which would automatically, if we all embrace that new definition, automatically create a new global ethic for how we can interact with each other, politically, socially, economically, and spiritually. So what would you say as to something that's happening right now with Vladimir Putin in Russia, who my understanding is an atheist and doesn't believe in any religion whatsoever, what is he working off of right now? I think he believes in a religion. They simply don't call it a religion. So he can say he doesn't believe in a religion. So let's change the word religion to philosophy. Okay. He has a definite philosophy that he believes in, and it's the philosophy of power. Power over, not power with. I see. And to some degree, even though the original system of communism, even by the word communal, communism, even though the entire system was based on the thought of power with, that it was a power-sharing uh, construction at the beginning, it turned into not a power-sharing construction, because in power-sharing constructions, everybody has a vote. Everybody at least has the opportunity to have their say. But in what communism has turned into, it's not a system in which everyone has their say, but quite the opposite in which there is no democracy, there is no voting in the sense that we understand democracy, there is simply a power construction, a power structure, 
a hierarchy, if you please, of people who are in power. And that's probably 0.1% of the population. And the rest of the people have no choice, no vote in the matter. You know, they could say, who voted for this? A lot of people in Russia right now are saying, who voted for this with regard to the conflict in Ukraine? But the government is now making sure that they'll do whatever they can to shut down even those opposing voices. How dare you question what the you know 250 of us who are in power in a nation of millions, how dare you question what the few of us have decided that we are going to do, much less what one of us has decided that he wants us to do. So it's an entirely different system of governing and of living together. But Mr. Putin does not have a religion but if he could be said to have a religion, his religion is power, not power with, but power over. So how do we as a collective who may have just been born into that for a purpose, I do believe everyone has a purpose and is playing some sort of part and learning in all of this. You believe everyone has a purpose? Who would give everyone a purpose? That's an interesting statement. Uh, That's different. See, we got to be very careful with words. When we say, I believe everyone has a purpose, many people think, oh, God has assigned me a purpose. Uh, All I have to do is figure out what it is. And you'd be amazed at the number of people. We're not talking about a couple of dozen, but millions of people think that their life activity is to find out, to discover what their purpose is, the purpose that's been assigned to them by God. So I want to be real clear here. at least with regard to my understanding, God does not assign us a purpose. So if each of us has a purpose, then our opportunity, I would rephrase that to say each of us has an opportunity to declare a purpose. And we can declare that purpose in our lives. And many of us have declared our purpose. And by the way, many of us have changed our purpose. Many of us have declared a purpose when we're seven, when we're 14 when we're 26, when we're 32, when we're 45, when we're 53, when we're 67, and somewhere around 78, we might decide what our ultimate purpose should have been and what we're going to at least allow it to be in the remaining days and times of our life. So this business of life purpose is something that I noticed that most human beings visit repeatedly, change frequently, and ultimately decide on permanently. And you're disagreeing with that, that we're just here? Oh, no, I think that we do have a purpose. Yeah. I'm not disagreeing with that at all. I was simply disagreeing with the idea that we have a purpose given to us, somehow or another assigned Uh to us, and that our job is to turn over enough rocks or look behind enough trees or read enough books or take enough workshops or whatever, or pray hard enough, and then God will reveal our purpose to us. So that's what I disagree with, because many people think that's how it works. And what life is inviting us to do is to decide on what our purpose will be. In fact, life is deciding us to answer four questions. Who am I? Where am I? Why am I where I am? And what do I intend to do about that? I call these the four fundamental questions of life. That's a lot. (laughs) I'm listening to that. I mean, that makes me pause right there to sit in that. That's a lifetime. Most people move through their entire lives and never ask themselves those questions. 
let me review one possible answer to question number one. Who am I? When I pose that to people, just chatting casually in a informal conversation, I might say to them, let me ask you an interesting question. Who are you? That is, how do you conceptualize yourself? Are you a physical entity, you know, like a bird in the sky or a fish in the sea, mm-hmm. a life form, you know, more sophisticated perhaps than some other life forms, but basically a physical expression of life. You're born, you live, you die, and that's the beginning and the end of it. Or do you conceive of yourself as a spiritual entity? In which case you could actually say, I am not my body. I am not my mind. My body and my mind are simply tools that I have. I have a body and I have a mind, but that's not who I am. I am a spiritual entity. If you conceive of yourself as that, that answers the question, number one, who are you? I'm a spiritual entity. Some people call it a soul, if you please. Having a body and a mind. Question number two, where are you? I'm in the physical realm. I'm in the realm of the relative, as opposed to the metaphysical realm, or if you please, the spiritual realm, or as some religionists would call it, heaven. I'm not in heaven anymore. I'm not in that blissful place. I'm in the realm of the spiritual. Question number three, why are you? where you are, in order to express an experience, to fulfill and to demonstrate my true identity. Why would you want to do that? In order that I might fulfill the agenda of the soul, which is to evolve. Mm -hmm. I am here, in fact, as is every life form, to evolve, to become the next grandest expression of my true identity. Mm-hmm. Question number four, what do you intend to do about that? Ah, that's when you answer, what is your life purpose? Mm. What I intend to do about that is what I've been doing for the past 27 years. But I, I didn't become clear on that until I was 53 years old. Yeah. I didn't even know to ask the questions until I was 53 years old. Yes. I remember sitting with my father when he was 83, God bless him. It was Thanksgiving. We were having a, a Thanksgiving dinner. And I had a Thanksgiving visit, and he and I were alone in the parlor for a while. I only saw him once or twice a year in those days because he lived many states away from me. But I sat down with him on that day in the parlor, and we were very quiet. We were just sitting together, enjoying, just enjoying being together, looking at each other, smiling, maybe sharing a thought or two. And then out of the blue, he looked at me and he said, I don't understand any of it. I said, what did you say? He said, you heard me. I said, I don't understand any of it. And my thought was, oh my God, I've been taking advice from this guy since I was four years old. (laughs) And he doesn't understand any of it. And now he's telling me at 83 that he doesn't understand any of it. So, you know, I gave him my ideas of what, might be true. And he looked at me and he said, oh, horse manure. He didn't use the word manure. He used a different word, but it meant the same thing. So he rejected everything I had to say to him. And I knew then that when I got to 83, I did not want to be sitting around all day watching soap operas on television with no sense of purpose in my life, no even reason for going on. Why bother going on when you're 83? So you can get to 93 and have 10 more years of doing nothing in particular, watching 
soap operas? Yeah. You know, and making sure that your pet dog got his food three times a day and that's it? There must be something more to do. Life cannot be that randomly vacuous. Come on. Somebody please tell me there's more going on here. Well, of course, Shakespeare put it perfectly. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Yeah. To be or not to be, that is the question. <laughs> Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to rise up against a sea of troubles, and by opposing to end them, to die, to sleep, to sleep, perchance to dream, aye, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come. Oh. Well, then that brings me back to you. And who are you? I'm a messenger. I've decided that I am a messenger. I've decided, in fact, that we are all messengers, but yeah. only a few of us know it. Yeah. Or choose to use the truth of who we are in a way that produces outcomes and benefit for ourselves and for others. I'm told advisedly that we are all messengers. Yes. And the message that we are sending to life itself is our life lived. And the way we live our life, the things we say, the things we do, the things we choose, the things we believe, sends a message to all of life that we are really all of us energy packages, if you will, energy that projects energy onto energy itself. Energy is an interesting phenomenon. It's an element in the universe that affects itself. That is, energy impacts upon energy. And so I am an energy projector and an energy receiver at the same time. My body receives energy and my body projects energy, as does my mind. But what kind of energy? Ah, that's where the soul comes in. The soul, or the essence of who we really are, gets to decide, if we allow it to, what kind of energy we choose to send into the world, mm. and how we choose to receive the energy that the world is sending to us. There are many things that we can do that share or send a particular kind of energy into the world. There was a guy who lived a few years ago, interesting man, who said some interesting things about the kind of energy we may want to send into the world. I recall, I think he said something like, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you and do good to those who would do you evil. And when a man slaps you on the right cheek, turn and offer him your left. And when a man asks you for your coat, give him your shirt as well. And when a man asks you to walk one mile with him, go with him twain. And raise not your fist to heaven, and curse the darkness not, but be a light unto the darkness, that you might know who you really are, and that all those whose lives you touch might know who they really are as well. Mm. Yes. And when people walked up to this interesting guy and said to him, who the hell do you think you are talking like this? They didn't put the exact words they used were, by whose authority are you acting like this? And they wondered how he could even do what he was doing, how he could behave the way he was behaving, how he could change people's lives the way he was changing their lives. And he looked right at them and said, why are you so amazed? These things 
and more shall you do also. We simply chose not to believe a word of it. Mm. Too good to be true. Is that said, it? Yeah, and when I said is to that... God, you know, you know, the stuff you're telling me is too good to be true, God said, hey, Neil, if God can't be too good to be true, who can? Okay, so I know there's still going to be a lot of doubters out there, and I want to get back to our good buddy, Vladimir Putin, <laughs> where in your book you talk about that, that we should forgive everyone, right? No, we shouldn't forgive anyone. Forgiveness is the biggest obstacle to spiritual growth. So what should we do with him? Understand. Understand. Understanding replaces forgiveness in the mind of the master. There's another interesting guy who lived not quite so long ago named John Paul. He was the second one to be calling himself John Paul, so they called him John Paul II. He happened to be a pope. And in a motorcade in Rome a few years ago, he was shot. Six times. Not once, but six times. All six bullets landed. Miraculously, he recovered. It was unbelievable, but he did. And after he got out of the hospital, he went to the jail cell of the man who tried to kill him, because, of course, they captured him immediately and put him in jail for life. He was in a life sentence. And the Pope said something very interesting to the man that tried to kill him. He said very quietly, in nomine patrifidio spiritus santo, amen. That is, he gave the man his papal blessing. Then he asked the man an interesting question. He said, look, I can't condone what you did. By the way, there were reporters present. He did this deliberately as a public display because he wanted to make a demonstration. Mm -hmm. So he said to the man with all the reporters present, I can't condone what you did. I would never agree with it. I would never encourage anyone to use that course of action. But can you at least tell me why you would do it? Can you help me understand? And the man said, yeah, I can tell you why I did it. Because I believe the Catholic Church has done more to damage other people, particularly people of my religion and other religions on the place, face of the earth. You've actually preached that if a person isn't Catholic, they're going to hell, among other things. So I decided I would do something about it. And just, you know, I was angry about it. That's, and the Pope said, now I understand. They became pen pals. The Pope and this prisoner exchanged letters from the prison cell to the papal residence for years. And finally, after seven years, the Pope actually asked the civil authorities in Rome to give the man a full pardon. He had served enough time, the Pope said. Release him, please. And of course, the civil authorities did at the Pope's request and released the man from prison. Conversations with God said something very interesting to me, which this anecdote illustrates. Understanding replaces forgiveness in the mind of the master. If you think you have to forgive somebody, you have made the biggest spiritual mistake you could make, which is assuming that you are not who you really are. It's an announcement that you reject the notion that you are, in fact, a living, breathing demonstration, an individuation of divinity. Mm. Now, when people talk to me at lectures, when I talk like this, they say, what are you trying to say, that you're God? And I say, well, well wait a minute, I didn't say that. I said, I'm an individuation of divinity. 
it's like a, a wave on the ocean surface. Have you ever been on a board a ship and seen the surface of the ocean produce a wave? And the guy says, yeah, I've seen that. I say, okay, great. Is the wave something other than the ocean? Is it different than the ocean? Is it separate from the ocean? Or is it simply an arising of the ocean in individual form? Beautiful, powerful, expressive. But when that form is complete with its expression, it recedes back into the ocean to arise again on another day. Yeah. That's what I mean when I say I am an individuation of divinity. But if I imagine that somehow you can hurt the truth of who I am, that is my fundamental identity, you might be able to hurt my body, but you can't hurt my soul. You can't injure or damage or anger or frustrate or annoy my soul in any way because of who I really am. So how do we get people to understand that? Because I feel... Oh, I understand it perfectly. I just explained no, I understand. it perfectly. <laughs> but the majority, right? The majority to understand the oneness. And why do people take such offense to that? Like they let people because parade around they like think that one is be, they take they it to it because they believe that oneness means they lose their individuality. They think that oneness equates to ah. loss of individuality and that they would then disappear as a separate individual entity on the earth. The biggest mistake that human beings have made is to buy into the idea of separation, that we are somehow separate from each other. We're different from each other, but we're not separate from each other. And by the way, if I could use an adult example, we're all grown-ups here, so you'll forgive me for using a sexual reference. But when we are in love's fond embrace, united with another human being, we have a direct experience that we are different from each other, but we are not separate from each other. And when we remove ourselves from that moment, but continue the vibrational experience of it for the rest of our life, we are said to be in love. That's what it means to be in love. Yeah. I could be wrong about all of this, but I don't think so. Well, Neil, I have personally had my moments of just complete bliss, of feeling divine love, of feeling in that moment, of feeling completely connected with everything around me, humans, nature, source, and then it fleets. And then my son knocks on my door and yells at me and says, mom, where's my backpack? And, <laughs> and then, you know, I walk out on the street and someone yells at me or someone almost hits me, a horn honks. How do we incorporate this? How By we... seeing the events yeah. you're describing as opportunities, not as opposition. Oh, when we turn opposition into opportunities to announce and declare, ah, another chance to express and fulfill, yeah. to demonstrate and become the experience of who we really are. Opportunities, oh, I see another chance for me to demonstrate who I really am. My father, by the way, speaking of my father, from the time I was nine years old until the time I was 19 and left the house, he asked me periodically the same question. Who do you think you are anyway? He didn't mean it metaphysically. He didn't realize he was asking me the spiritual question of all time. <laughs> know thyself. 
But of course, it is the question. Who do you think you are? Yeah. So when your son knocks on the door and says, Mom, where's my backpack? Or the guy on the street honks his horn and gives you the finger. Yeah. Or when something else occurs in your life, when you see it as, oh, I see another opportunity for me to express and to experience, to demonstrate and to fulfill the highest idea I ever had about who I really am. When we train ourselves to see those events in exactly that way, we become a living, breathing demonstration, a living, breathing expression of divinity. And if you don't think that'll change your life, try it for a week. Just discipline yourself to do it for one week. Forget about the rest of your life. Yeah. But after doing that for one week, you will realize, wow, what I have been missing. I didn't understand anything that's going on here. Then you will move into a, an entirely different emotional response to the horn honking or the child asking where his backpack is. You will have an entirely different emotional response. Gratitude. Your response will be gratitude. Thank you, God, for another opportunity to announce and declare, to express and fulfill, to become and to experience who I really am. Now, here's what's interesting about that. The more we do that, the fewer of those moments we draw to us, because we're only drawing them to us as a means of providing the opportunity I've just described. But when we no longer need to draw those moments to us, because we're using every event in life, even the joyful events, as opportunities to just demonstrate who we are, the number of such annoying moments is reduced exponentially. And we find ourselves living, as we say in the vernacular, living on easy street. Yeah, living in bliss. I've always said that we have heaven on earth here, and it's just up to us to let it be that way. What if someone is listening to this who finds themselves under the thumb of a dictator or in the middle of a war or of an unbearable situation? What is the response supposed to be, Deal? I don't think there's a response that's supposed to be because of the way you phrase the question immediately causes me to ask, who would do the supposing? What is the response supposed to be seems to indicate that there is a response that is that someone has supposed we should be using, and all we have to do is figure out what it is. Mm. So the question is not what is the response supposed to be. The question is, what response do we choose in that moment? Mm. What response would bring us or me individually the most inner peace, the largest inner experience? of who I understand myself to be, what response would produce that? Mm -hmm. I remember we talked earlier about, not that I happen to be a card-carrying Christian, but we talked a little bit earlier about what this interesting guy who lived a couple of years ago named Jesus said. As I recall, what he said when he was being crucified individually was, they don't even know what they're doing. Yeah. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. So I guess if I was in that situation, I'm sure I would experience anger and frustrate and upset. I would do what I could to get out of the way of any incoming 
danger if I could. But at some level, I would move to the place within me that knows who I really am. And I would probably see if I could replace even forgiveness with understanding. Ah, I can understand, given his point of view, given his lack of understanding, I can understand how a person could do these things. Understanding doesn't make it okay. I don't condone it. I don't approve of it. But I can understand how a person with that limited point of view could do what they have done and are doing. And so understanding replaces forgiveness in the mind of the master. I would then do what my understanding would in that moment cause me to do. By the way, self-defense is perfectly understandable and is, is not to be thought of as less spiritually elevated than any other particular response. It was made very clear to me in conversations with God that self-defense is perfectly reasonable and blessed response. Because not to defend ourselves, to say to the other person, whether it's a, a dictator from another country or just somebody in your own household who's abusing you. Failure to stop the abuse is abusive to the abuser because it tells the abuser that your abuse is okay. It's okay with me. Continue as long as you want. So what the true spiritual master does is say to the abuser, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to stop your abuse of me. Because if you learn that this abuse is acceptable, you will continue that behavior. And that will result in your forgetting who you really are, and sadly, never having the opportunity to experience it in this lifetime. So I'm going to give you an opportunity to step away from learning that lesson. I'm not going to allow you to learn that your abusive behavior is acceptable because that doesn't serve you to learn that lesson. So whether it's the person across the room or the person across the world who's exhibiting abusive behavior, it's perfectly spiritually elevated for us to say, excuse me, but no thank you, and to do whatever it takes to defend against that and to stop it and to bring it to a stop. So are we in a world then of pendulums, like one side believes this kind of, you know, I mean, you go on about it and the God solution as well. I mean, we're such a country divided. Is it just constantly one side against another going to tell that this is not okay for you to do? It's, and will we uh, continue to do this forever? Well, of course, I can't answer that question of whether we'll continue to do it forever. <laughs> but what I do know is that why we are doing it is because we're a very young species. Yes, We're a very, very young species, and so we are acting like the children that we are. That is, in the universe, we are one of the youngest species of life, one of the youngest life forms in the universe. Do you want to share the quote from your book? Relative okay. to the age of the Earth. Yeah. If we took the age of the Earth and put it on, overlaid it on the calendar year, just in order for us to you know, have a better understanding of it, to take a huge subject and bring it down to bite-sized chunks. Let's pretend that the age of the earth could fit onto a calendar year where the earth was born, if you please, came into being on January 1st, and then we call now December 31st. On that scale, the first form of any kind of life, single cell form of life, did not appear on this planet 
until the middle of February. The first form of life in certain mammalian forms, birds in the sky, fish in the sea, didn't appear until around the third week of November. Dinosaurs did not even appear until the 15th of December on that scale. On that scale, humanoids, not human beings, but you know, animals that walked upright and began acting a little bit like humans, didn't appear until December the 31st. And human beings didn't appear until one minute before midnight on December 31st. And all of human history could be jammed into the last 60 seconds of that calendar year. That's how young we are relative to the age of this planet. Forget about the age of the cosmos. Mm. So we're very, very young. And yes. we are acting like it. We're acting yeah. like four-year-olds. Mm -hmm. Question that only we can answer. We can, in fact, and we have the power to completely eliminate life as we know it on this planet. We have that ability. Like children playing with matches in the dynamite room. We have the ability to blow ourselves up and to end life as we know it, one way or the other, mm -hmm. either with actual bombs or with certain diseases that we say we had no way of controlling or with something even more controllable, our climate. We could even destroy ourselves by simply how we are utterly and completely ignoring what we are doing to the climate of the earth. Why? And pretending that we're not doing it. Why? Why? Because we don't know any better, because we are children. And because we refuse, like children do, like two-year-olds do, we refuse to listen to those who know better. We don't even listen to our scientists who tell us about the climate crisis. We live in denial. So the question becomes, is there something that could occur that could expand the consciousness of people on the planet to the point where it reaches critical mass? Now, there's a little bit of hope here. To add a word of hope before we say goodbye, critical mass is not achieved when we reach one person over 50%, 51% of the people. It's not even achieved at 25% or even 10% or even 5%. Sociologists and physicists both tell us that critical mass is achievable when we reach between 2 and 3.5% of the whole. That's achievable now because of the internet, because of the way we can spread ideas from one person to the other, because of the rapid increase of our communications technologies. All we have to really reach is a, a relatively tiny portion of the billions of people on the planet with a brand new idea of who we are, who God is, what life is about, and how we can solve the dilemma we've faced. I call that the God solution. Thank you very much. <laughs> Tell us, Neil. Tell us what the God solution is. To imagine that God is simply pure energy. And to imagine that we call that pure energy love. Now, when I tell my audiences God is pure love, my audiences, somebody will inevitably get up and again in the back of the room and say, oh, well, Neil, are you telling me I sat here for the entire hour listening to you? This is your great revelation. This is the revolutionary idea. God is love. And I have to say to that person, sweetheart, I didn't say God is love. You didn't hear me say God is love. I said God is pure love. 
Now, the man in the back of the room might say, all right, all right, what's the difference? The difference is that pure love needs, expects, requires, and demands nothing in return. We can't even love the person across the pillow, much less the person across the world, in such a way. But when we suddenly begin to realize this is how God loves us, and begin to use that as our model, our behavioral model, then we can begin to change the world by loving each other in ways that demonstrate that we need, require, expect, and demand nothing in return. Right now, we love each other by saying, I love you if. Hey, do you know what? We do trade deals. Like nations have trade deals with each other. We have trade deals with people. We say, you know what? Uh, I'll give you this if you give me that. We don't put it in those exact words, but that's the implicit understanding. And on Valentine's Day, we give each other the perfect Valentine's Day card. My dearest beloved, I trade you very much. And I will never stop trading you. I will trade you until the end of time. Ah, but if you stop trading me, the deal is off. That's how we deal with other nations. That's how we deal with the person across the room. That's how we deal with the person on the other side of the bed, unless we don't anymore. Do you think unless it's we possible? change our mind. Yes, of course it's possible. We have been told by every walking master and every teacher who we have, we have declared to be a master, both male and female throughout the years, they've all said the same thing. Do unto others as you would have it done unto you. It's really quite simple. And so I invite people to use a little tool I invite people to wake up each morning and decide to say in their mind, not out loud, because if you say it out loud, no one will understand. But say in your mind, the first time you lay eyes on anybody, the first time you lay eyes on your beloved across the pillow, on your friend across the room, on your neighbor across the street, on the stranger across town, or on the person across the world. The first time you lay eyes on anybody in any given day, say this in your mind. I have come that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. Your life will be made better today for my having passed through it. I promise you. Your life will be made better today for my having passed through it. I promise you, be careful. Because if you actually said that in your mind, every day, the first time you saw any other person, and if you did that for 30 days, your life will never be the same. It is what I said in my mind. When I laid eyes on you, your life will be made better today for my having passed through it. I promise you. I could, of course, be wrong about all of this. 
but I don't think so. So I say to you, your life will be bettered by my passing through it. Is that correct? Your life will be made better by my having passed through it. Does that feel arrogant? By whose authority are you acting like this? <laughs> yes. Some people could call it arrogance. Yeah. Or some people could call it awareness. Yeah. It is my intention that your life will be made better for my having passed through it. It's incredible. You mentioned in, in the chapter, before we go, I, you talk that God is the stem cell of the universe. And I can't think of anything more beautiful. And I'd, I'd love to hear you just say a few words on that. Well, we try to somehow conceive of the highest power there is, or the source, if you please, of all of life. But several uh, decades ago now, you know, medicine and science joined together to discover or to notice that there are such a thing as stem cells, and that stem cells are undifferentiated cells of the living body, not just in humans, but in all living things. Everything starts from a stem cell, which is undifferentiated. And then the stem cell differentiates and becomes the cell of a brain or a lung or a heart or some other body part or some other aspect of that living entity, including us. The stem cell differentiates as Christine and Neil and everyone who's listening to this program. And so we are the differentiations, the individuations, if you please, of God. Or as I put it in my words, we are each of us singularizations of the singularity. And so I, you know, I just conceive of God as the stem cell of the universe, mm -hmm. the undifferentiated energetic source of all that is, which has since differentiated itself as you and me, as the planet Venus, as the sun, as everything that we see mm -hmm. in physical reality. I could be wrong about that. I mean, by the way, I, I want to end my conversation with you by saying, I have no need to be right about any of this. Yeah. But I want people who hear me to understand that. I don't want them to think, you know, well, he certainly thinks he has the answers. No, I, <laughs> I could be wrong about all of this. Yeah. So it's just ideas that I have. But, you know, it might be interesting to try on some of those ideas and see if or how they might work. Exactly. Certainly changed my life. Exactly. And is that, Neil, is that what you would say to our listeners who are wanting to be the change and are wanting to see that difference in the world? Yeah, it's not only what I would say to your listeners, it's what I've already just said. Just said it. Yeah. That's what I would say to your listeners. Listen, <laughs> play, play back what I just said. Yeah, exactly. That's what and God says. Play back what I just said. Play back what I just said. Play back what I just said. And God has used her messengers on this planet to do just that, to play back what she just said. And that's all that the masters have ever done. It's all that Buddha did. It's all that Muhammad did, bless his holy name. It's all that yeah. Moses did. It's all that Eleanor Bingham did. That's all that Mother Mary did. It's all that the messengers, male and female, through the years have ever done. They're just repeating what God just said. Mm. All and we have to do is listen. Let, yeah. let those who have ears to hear Listen. Be the change. As Gandhi put it perfectly, be the change you want to see in the world. 
But there's somebody else quite wonderful who said something that I have remembered ever since he said it. Albert Einstein, one of the world's great scientists, said, you cannot solve any problem using the same energy that created it. If you think you're going to end terror with terror, if you think you're going to bring an end to violence with violence, if you're going to think you're going to stop anger with anger, then you don't understand a single thing about how energy works. You cannot solve any problem using the same energy that created it. Hello, wake up. And even some of us who can understand that intellectually, do we actually do that? We do unless we don't. Yeah. But that's why there are programs such as yours. Neil, to be an so alarm clock. If only one other person, there are thousands of people listening to you right now, but if only one of those thousands of people say, you know what, I get this. I totally get this. And I'm going there. Yeah. Then you have done what you came here to do to this program. Yeah. It's as simple as that. You're absolutely right. It hurts, though. It hurts to see when you know that we could change it in a different way and you still see it happening. I don't know. For me, it hurts. Growing up is painful. Barbara Marks Harvard put it. It's a birthing pain. It's humanity's birthing pains. It's not going to be without pain, but we can birth a new civilization hmm. if we embrace the process with love, peace, joy, understanding, knowledge, and willingness. Willingness even as a mother who gives birth, willingness to experience the pain. Ah, gosh, this is painful. But I am bringing forth new life. And I would not try to step away from this pain if it meant losing the chance to bring forth new life. Every mother who has given birth understands exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. Well, thank you. I would like to share again that the book is The God Solution, The Power of Pure Love. And Neil, do you have a preference where people purchase it? No, they can even read it online. Preference. I put the whole book online for free yeah. at my yeah. Facebook page. Did you really? Yes. You can read it in excerpts. Every day, another excerpt for the past year. Every day, another excerpt from the book. And if you'd rather have your own copy, of course, you can get it at Amazon or any other place where people purchase books. I love but you that. don't have to buy it. I wanted to make sure people could access it without spending a nickel. I love that. I love that. Because I made a decision. Your yeah. day will be made better for my having passed through it. I promise you. <laughs> Help others, huh? If yeah. we choose. Yeah. Your website is neildonaldwalsh.com. And then there's also cwgconnect.com. And you can also find Neil on Twitter at Real Indie Walsh. And Neil, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you um, for everything. And thank you for making my day better for it. I appreciate you. Thank you for the opportunity to share this time with you. How generous of you and how nice of you to do so. Bye for now. Be well. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and are inspired. We grow with supporters and listeners like you. So please share this podcast with your community and follow us on Instagram at bethechange.nyc. And to learn more about our guests and what you can do to be the change, go to our website at www.bethechange.nyc. That's bethechange.nyc. Thank you and be well.